Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. There's sort of a big tension when we talk about China trade talks, which is just how much ammunition does the government of China, does the PBOC have to stimulate the economy amid all of the back and forth between the U.S. and China? And Gabriela Santos has been following this. She, uh, of course, is vice president, global market strategist uh, for J.P. Morgan Asset Management. Um, thank you so much for being here. She is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Gabriela, what did you make of this record credit growth that we saw in January out of China. So China has this uh, balancing act they're trying to to play here, right? They're trying to do some structural reforms. They've acknowledged over the past couple of years that they have a credit problem. Surprise. Um, we can clearly see a big, big increase in corporate credit in China. Uh, most they said of that- they have a credit problem. They tried to double down on that. And, you know, try to try to do something about it. And now we're just seeing them say, all right, actually, leverage is great. No, no, no. And so that's the balancing act they try to play. Right. So it's long term. We got to fix this short term. We have to guarantee social stability pretty much, um, meaning a de- have a decent economic uh, backdrop. So it's a bit of a push-pull. Uh, long-term, they want to eventually wind down that credit piece. Short-term, they're happy to step on that lever um, just to guarantee some stability. But what's interesting about the Chinese stimulus is that credit is just part of it. They've been relying on some other stimulus that's new for them, which is actually reducing income taxes, corporate taxes. So they have been trying to be a little bit more creative um, at the same time that Unfortunately, they have to revert to the old playbook from time to time. And yet, Gabby, we've had five reserve requirement ratio cuts since early 2018 and still growth has not stabilized. What is different about the character, the nature of the stimulus this time around and why the economy isn't stabilizing as it has done in response to these kind of measures in previous years? Well, because it's not a bazooka like they've used in the past. Post uh, global financial crisis or even 2015, they were doing broad-based monetary easing, broad-based stepping on that credit lever. This time, they're doing a little bit of that, but they are aware of that structural issue. So they are also trying to deal with fiscal uh, stimulus, which takes a little bit of a there's a bit of a lag until that plays out in the economy. All right. So the reason why this all matters, right, is because, first of all, China is the second biggest economy in the world. But also we have a situation where investors are racing. They're tripping over themselves to go into emerging markets, debt and equities. And I have to wonder how much this really hinges on the idea that China is going to remain a powerhouse come hell or high water, no matter how they have to get there, including adding leverage and uh, basically sacrificing their future uh, for the now. So there's very much an expectation that China will succeed in stabilizing their economy. So it's not that bazooka of stimulus. So it's not an acceleration in growth, but it is an expectation of stabilization and growth. So that's very important, of course, as you mentioned, because China is a huge economy. It has links all over emerging markets and it has an impact on developed markets as well. Europe directly as a as, as, as a big uh, trading partner, but yeah. even in the U.S., right, for U.S. companies. So it matters in so many different dimensions. And that's why we have to actually see the effect on the data of that stabilization. So let's think about the spillover, the potential negative spillover, because here are the fears this morning. You get a decelerating 
PPI reading, perhaps falling back into deflation there. The fear is industrial prof- profits will be lower. Companies already under pressure from a weaker economy. The fear is that the export prices are going to roll over. And the fear is you export disinflation into the rest of the world. Feels a little bit like early 2016, perhaps with the volume turned down. Is that a decent comparison? That is a decent comparison. That was that time that we were worried about a Chinese hard landing, if we recall, uh, and all of its negative spillover effects on emerging markets, developed markets as well. Um, So I do think we need to see that stability in Chinese data, but that perhaps the old China is not where we should look, right? As we were mentioning, there is more of a fiscal stimulus push. I don't think we should overlook the tremendous amount of stimulus they've done through their reworking of income taxes, right? So where we should look for that stability is actually on the consumer side in China. From an investor perspective, does this mean buy Chinese bonds, buy Chinese equities? From that perspective, I would say it's by, you know, emerging market equities, frankly. So you you don't think it's been overplayed, this whole EM bet? I do not think it's been overplayed. Even though the Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey actually says for the first time in its history that a majority of clients think that that the EM long trade is the most crowded trade out there. You know, when I actually look at flow data for emerging markets, I think the best source for, for that is the IAF, the Institute of International Finance. They do a great job of tracking flows to EM. You did see an increase in the fourth quarter of last year, but I mean, it's, it's barely a, a wrinkle in the water. So maybe people are saying they're feeling optimistic about emerging markets. Frankly, I haven't seen that in the flow data. Well, the market seems to be positioning for this reality just in terms of price. I mean, we're up 7.5% on the Shanghai Comp through 2019. We're on for another week of gains for Chinese equities. Gabby, I just get the feeling the market is already behind your point of view. The market is already invested to capture upside once China stabilizes. And I think the real fear, and I get a lot of messages about this on any given day now, what happens if we get a trade deal and the economy still doesn't stabilize. So, yes, we're up 7% in emerging markets this year, but that's after we tanked 15% last year, right? So when we look at valuations in EM, still below average on a price-to-book ratio, which is our favorite valuation metric. When we look at emerging markets earnings estimates, they've been downgraded by 7% in two months. So still very low bar there for earnings, especially in EM Asia, China, Korea, Taiwan. Um, So no, I don't think that EM story is overplayed, and I think it has further room to go. How much is the EM story uh, contingent on the dollar continuing to weaken or not strengthening further here? That's a really crucial point. It's EM has always been very, very highly correlated to dollar moves. Not as much as in the past because it is less commodity focused now, but there is still a strong correlation of about 0.7. So it very much needs the dollar to weaken. And I'm somewhat concerned that the dollar has started to strengthen again. Um, So to be fair, that's a wrinkle in this positive story that we've been discussing. Um, I think for EM, the dollar very much trades on growth differentials versus interest rate differentials. That's more of a developed market story. Um, So again, going back to that point of we need to see the data stabilize in China, which would get the rest of EM going. Well, Lisa, you mentioned the Bank of America Merrill Lynch fund manager survey. The interesting thing about it wasn't just the number one most crowded trade. It was the number two most crowded trades. So number one was long EM. Number two was long the US dollar. There's some tension between number one and two. The market has positioned for a stronger dollar. It's positioned long EM. How do those two things reconcile? No, those are contradictory ideas. Uh, EM very much needs the dollar to weaken. It, it cannot outperform if the dollar is strengthening. 
Gabby Santos, great to have you with us. JP Morgan, Asset Management Global Market Strategist. So the two most crowded trades in the market, according to this survey, are contradictory ideas. And, and most people would agree with Gabby. That just makes sense. I just wonder how those two trades are going to reconcile in the coming months. Well, it shows me just how much confusion there is out there. I mean, honestly, right now, uncertainty is sort of the, the key word. You hear sort of a bell go off anytime anyone says uncertainty. It's saying, you know, basically we don't have conviction because it's really hard to know what's going to happen. So who knows? Isn't this just the nature of financial markets that there is always something to worry about? No, I actually think that this is a change. I mean, yes, of course, there's always something to worry about. But I think that for a number of years, there was a don't fight the Fed, don't fight the central banks kind of mantra. And if people went along with that, they won. And I think that there is not the same macro story anymore. So essentially what you're saying is the Fed has backed away. Maybe. And that is sufficient. Sort of. <laughs> that is, used to be sufficient to stabilize growth and stabilize risk, but now that's just a prerequisite and no longer sufficient. No, you're taking the morphine away. People actually have to price a market. They actually have to figure out. Oh, you think that's what we're doing now? I mean, a little bit more than we used okay, to. Couple of Do you months remember of, 2013? A couple Come of on. months of rough market data in the Federal Reserve. Does a full 180. I, well, right. I mean, we could talk about, you know, whether the morphine actually has been pulled away, but that's, I guess, a conversation for another time. I think we're still loaded up. Are we? shots of morphine worldwide. We could talk about that through this Let, program. Let's talk about our morphine addiction. Let, let's not. I want to really dig into the dollar because this seems to be one of the biggest conundrums of 2019. Is it going to strengthen or weaken? And joining us now is Bipin Rai. He is CIBC Head of North American Foreign Exchange Strategy. Uh, Bipin, thank you so much for being with us. Really, this is an area that I, I hear complete lack of conviction on. You've got some people saying the dollar is going to weaken because of a dovish Fed. You have other people saying it's going to strengthen because everybody else is going to be more dovish. Where do you fall on this? Well, we're on the side of the uh, the former camp. We do think that strategically the dollar is overvalued by some uh, 12 to 15 percent. And over the longer term, uh, the, the trend is going to be for the dollar to weaken. And of course, that's reflective of, uh, like you said, a dovish Fed. Uh, and also because of um, you know, what, we, what we would term as irresponsible fiscal policy and, and a cyclical deceleration in the U.S. economy. Now, of course, you know, tactically, that hasn't really borne fruit. And in our view, that's because really there's a, there's a lack of alternatives out there worth investing in uh, when, you, when you judge uh, from a fundamental perspective. And that's really what's kept the dollar afloat, in our view, for the first uh, month or so in 2019. The argument over the fiscal story for foreign exchange that I've heard a couple of times, in fact, many times over the last couple of years, is that the fiscal deficit is going to get so big to fund it, either you need much higher treasury yields or you need a much weaker currency. Bippen, why does that story play out anytime soon? That's, that's probably going to be something, again, that's going to weigh on the dollar more longer term as opposed to anything short term. And again, when we look at uh, cyclical deficits or, or even, uh, sorry, fiscal deficits versus the dollar, it tends to be a four to five to quarter lag. Uh, and again, you know, that, that was something that was implemented uh, last year. So we would still expect it to be more of a late 2019, early 2020 story. And again, you know, the key question to ask is that, you know, you, you run the, uh, the risk of running a deficit, uh, a large deficit now. What happens when the U.S. encounters a recession? Does that deficit blow out to, say, 8 to 9% of GDP? We do think that that's going to be a little too much for foreign investors to stomach. So you think the reaction function of investors, the central bias of investors that has existed for a long, long time now is going to change in the next downturn? Because typically, BIP, and what we're used to is if the global economy mm. turns lower, you buy two things. You buy treasuries and you buy the U.S. dollar. You think that changes next time right. around? 
We think there there is a good chance because again, he, with the tax cuts last year, what what ended up happening was a cyclical uh, decoupling of. Uh, how the eurozone economic picture grows and also how the japanese economic picture grows and also now with the u.s economy going undergoing a downturn i think what's been underappreciated is that we're just entering the u.s cyclical downturn now whereas the eurozone and japan have already been going through it so we'd expect the eurozone and japanese economies to to come out of this cyclical downturn much sooner than the, sooner than the u.s will and in our mind you know the investors will punish the, the the u.s fiscal situation because of that and again you know that's not a it's not a slight against the U.S. dollar's role as a reserve currency at this point. Uh, we do think that's much more of a longer term theme as opposed to the here and now. But we do think it's going to be more of a story about the the decoupling of these cyclical pictures in in some of the other larger economies in the U.S. It's so interesting because we do talk about the deepening deficit in the U.S. when we talk about uh, some of the concerns around the dollar as a reserve currency, and yet. There is zero evidence, certainly with rates, that people do punish the U.S. for borrowing a lot of money. I mean, you see people just flooding back to yeah. treasuries. So I guess where, right. where have we seen any evidence that there is any recognition by investors that, uh, that the fiscal backdrop is weakening? You haven't seen it yet. No, that, that, that's something that's going to take a longer time to, to play out. And, uh, and again, you know, you're right. I mean, where is the liquidity? Where is the yield right now? It's in the U.S. dollar. Uh, and that's part and parcel uh, of the reason why the U.S. dollar still remains somewhat uh, firm. But again, we'd caution uh, to investors to remember that which uh, which economies are running the current account surpluses and where are we seeing portfolio investment uh, really flow out of. And that's, of course, your surplus economies like the Eurozone and Japan. So what happens when we start to see domestic yields in those economies start to rise uh, when their economies are outperforming the U.S.? So you would expect to see some uh, reversal of portfolio flows that we've seen over the last couple of years. So that would be uh, movement out of the U.S. economy and out of U.S. Uh, securities and back into potentially Japanese, Euro- European, or, or, or other surplus economies. And again, that's going to weigh uh, on the dollar to a certain extent. I want to get your view on the prospect for a trade deal. The headlines have dropped across the Bloomberg in the last hour or so. And one of the headlines that jumped out to me amidst all the happy talk about progress is this line right here. The United States is focused on technology transfer and currency mm. in these talks. Pippin, right. how is the currency going to be a feature of these negotiations? Well, I mean, it, there is the risk that uh, the Chinese could weaponize the renminbi and, and, and let it, uh, it depreciate even further. And again, they, uh, if I were the U.S., I'd be somewhat concerned about that, given the implications for trade. And of course, we've seen uh, a ratcheting up of rhetoric uh, from the Trump administration on that. But, you know, at the same time, the, the end goal for the Chinese is still to liberalize the currency. The, the only issue is they can't do it that quickly, because if you were to do it quickly, you'd expect to see massive capital outflows from the Chinese economy, and then you'd get a weaker renminbi anyway. So again, I mean, it's it's kind of a fine balancing act for the Chinese to do that, uh, and, and you know, again, the focus on the currency, uh, in our view, is is still very much an important part of the the, the Trump platform when it comes to China. Uh, but I would argue that the technology transfer is probably, the, the, at least in the near term, the more important feature to keep an eye on. On the currency specifically, though, and then we can get to technology transfer just quickly. I find it difficult mm-hmm. to see how we can push for the Chinese to liberalize the currency, because as you say, it will end up with a weaker Chinese currency. So what are we effectively asking the Chinese to do, not to liberalize the currency? I think there's still a, a misplaced uh, a misplaced rationale among the Trump administration that the Chinese are managing the currency to be uh, weaker than it, it really needs to be. In, in our view, again, the current account surplus has shrunk over several years. Uh, and that, uh, again, alludes to the fact that, uh, you know, the the currency needs to be somewhat weaker. So again, uh, you know, we would chalk it up to somewhat of a, a misplaced view uh, amongst the Trump administration in regards to what the Chinese are doing with the currency. 
Uh, it's quite the opposite of uh, what we had in the middle part of the last decade, where you could make a reasonably sound argument that the Chinese were keeping the uh, the, the currency artificially weak. We don't think that's the case anymore. Uh, in fact, we th- do think that the Trump administration needs to update their view on, on uh, the Chinese currency and how they're managing it. Bibin Rai of CIBC, uh, what is your highest conviction trade this year? Well, we're some, we're, we are bullish on uh, surplus currencies such as the Japanese yen and, uh, and the Swiss franc to a degree. And again, those aren't yield plays, naturally. Uh, they're more of our an extension of our view that liquidity will continue to wane and we will be entering more or less of a, of a risk-off uh, environment going forward. Uh, we do think that this equity rally was overdue given the fact that we, we overshot in Q4. But, but going forward, I mean, given the fact that liquidity is slowing and you can draw a reasonably sound relationship between the flow of liquidity uh, and the vol- process of volatility, uh, meaning that you know, li- once liquidity does decline, that tends to lead to a lot more process yeah. of volatility, particularly in the FX space. So we expect the Japanese yen and the Swiss franc to perform in that environment versus the U.S. dollar. We're also not uh, entirely optimistic on commodity currencies, including the Aussie and, and, and the Kiwi. Uh, we'd more or less expect them to underperform. Uh, and again, uh, you know, if we are looking at the Eurozone, uh, we're more or less waiting until the political waters become uh, much less, uh, much, much less muddier. Uh, of course, we've got the parliamentary elections in May. And of course, uh, we've got the Spanish election that's just been called for on, uh, on April 28th. Uh, and then you've got the entire the, uh, the Brexit situation, whether or not that represents a shock to the Eurozone. However, we remain somewhat optimistic on uh, the, the Scandinavian currencies, including the Swedish Kronik, yeah. the central bank there is is looking set to raise rates uh, going forward. So, again, it's really a story about surplus currencies in our mind going forward, and we think that's about perhaps the safest uh, bet uh, uh, to play in the, in the FX markets. So, safety above all else. Bipin Rai, thank you so much for being with us. Bipin Rai, CIBC, Head of North American Foreign Exchange Strategy. Well, talking about the trade story, uh, let's go to Washington, D.C. and talk about what's going on there. Let's bring in Isaac Boltansky, Compass Point Director of Policy Research. Isaac, uh, let's start with trade since that is what's moving markets more than staving off another government shutdown. Do you think that this time we're actually going to get some sort of agreement? Is the happy talk out of Washington, D.C. and Beijing different this time? Good morning. I think this time is different in that both sides, as you were just discussing, I think, are uh, incentivized to find some way to yes. It's still unclear what exactly that's going to look like. It's still unclear what the enforcement mechanisms will be, which is perhaps the most important part of this whole story. But I think that pressures on both sides of the Pacific have led us to where we are. We have continued negotiations, which is always positive. And the president made the biggest point this week, which was at least signaling a willingness to push the next deadline further if there is progress. And so I think this happy talk is different and that it's going to at least give us another punt. I would just like to also say that uh, happy talk has a trademark on it uh, from Jonathan Farrow, who has absolutely coined the term uh, so far. Just because I've abused it this week doesn't mean it's mine. (laughs) We're going to give it to you. I do have to wonder, uh, Kyle Bass of Heyman Capital Management writing a Bloomberg opinion piece uh, in the past few weeks talking about how President Trump should double down and ask for more from China based on the happy talk trademark, uh, registered mark. Based on what we're hearing, do you think that President Trump will take a hard enough line on China and and solidify a deal that is uh, appropriate for what some of the concerns are? 
Well, this has been one of the interesting dynamics is the battles within the Trump administration itself. Um, and whether that's Lighthizer versus Mnuchin, or you can go straight on down the line. I think that what we are going to get is a document that broadly outlines all of the goals that we've been talking about now for the past year almost. Um, but in terms of if it's enough, I don't think there will ever be enough. It will simply be a few steps in the right direction towards opening up China's markets, towards um, narrowing that trade gap, and hopefully providing, again, this enforcement mechanism where this time can indeed be different as long as we are able to get some clarity into what those promises look like and whether those promises that were made are kept. Isaac, I'm really fascinated to get your insight on on how you think this story is playing out in Washington, D.C., and that's Amazon abandoning Long Island City before it even arrives. There seems to be more broadly a backlash against big business on the left of American politics right now, increasingly so over the last year or so. What's your read on how you think this is going to play out? Sure. Well, I can tell you that the the read from D.C. can sort of be bucketed into two separate reactions. The first is worry that traffic here in the D.C. metropolitan area will get much, much worse (laughs) because of it. And the second is simply that I think this is one more indication, just one more data point of the just Herculean battle between governments and these these large tech companies that are operating in some ways like quasi-governmental institutions. And so it's not just going to happen here. We're going to see it in the halls of Congress with hearings in big tech. We're seeing in California and even Germany with some of the taxation proposals there. This is just one part of a much broader battle between governments trying to reassert themselves and large tech companies that I think have grown almost unabated um, over the past decade. Isaac, you're saying that you worry about traffic increasing. I'm surprised that you say that. I would think that there would be a collective cheer uh, in Arlington, Virginia and the Washington, D.C. metro area because it won. It was the number one headquarters. It's not going to be split between two. I'm surprised to hear. Is there more pushback, do you think, in the region uh, against the headquarters coming? No, look, that was, that was largely tongue-in-cheek. I think that the reality is that the D.C. metro area... just worried about senators getting around the city. That's That's so sweet of you. Carry on, Isaac. Yeah, no, look, I think D.C. is happy to get it, and it'll be interesting to see how the rest goes. But uh, the bigger the bigger battle here, I think, is going to be in the halls of Congress, because what we saw here was the progressive left in some ways. And this we've talked about before. The herbal Tea Party got a big win here. And Representative Ocasio-Ortez is is really, I think, the main victor. And this is something that she can take from, you know, this battle that was just in Queens now to the halls of Congress. But there is a big problem here, and that's uh, literacy around certain financial issues, Isaac. The belief that if you take away $3 billion of subsidies to Amazon, that you have a pile of cash to give away to do something else with. Um, Is the left trying to sell a pony here? And giving everyone a free pony, or are they just misunderstanding what is going on? I think I think it depends, member to member, um, in all honesty. But it, but your your point is a fair one, and I think politicians on both sides of the aisle have used misinformation and 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 uh, and I think a broader um, mistrust of different entities in society to yeah. further their cause. And what we have here is playing on a mistrust of big business and big tech that is really only just beginning.
I actually am surprised that you think uh, that uh, Alexandria Ocasio or Cortez can bring this to the halls of Congress as a win. I actually, that was not my reaction to this necessarily. There is a lot of backlash to this. You think this is going to be viewed as a win, or do you think that this is going to weaken the far left's position? I think I think her reaction indicates that she believes it's a win, and that her supporters believe it's a win. And I think it's one where um, it's it, whether whether it, it longer term is positive for the city. No one truly knows, and only time will tell. But at the moment, I think it will be spun undeniably as a win for uh, that particular brand of progressive politics. Well, it was certainly the outcome she wanted, and, and she can turn yeah. around and say it was a win um, as far as her objectives were concerned. But I, I guess the point you're trying to make, Lisa, is that the outcome isn't going to be positive. I mean, and I think that that's sort of a consensus across the board is that, uh, I mean, even local politicians uh, in New York City and Long Island City have said off the record and on the record, they kind of were looking for more from Amazon. They weren't looking for Amazon to just up and walk right. away from the table. Yeah. The other issue as well, Isaac, and I'd love your thought on this, is the battle between cities in America. Mm. It's almost been encouraged. Do you think that's something we need to take another look at? Good point. Yeah, look, I think that we saw during this entire bidding process a degree of uh, disdain and and um, and I would say overall sort of uh, discord that is concerning given the state of our local cities, given the need for broader sweeping infrastructure spending and ideas like that. And so instead of perhaps having cities battle once, battle against one another, we should have a broader sweeping agenda that actually handles some of these concerning issues. Isaac, great to catch up with you on uh, some really important stories in the last couple of days. Isaac Bortansky joining us from Washington, Compass Point Director of Policy Research. Lisa. Jonathan, I think you made a fantastic point, which is this whole idea of cities battling each other, whether it's for budgets, whether it's for companies, and Amazon fueled that, basically. Oh, Amazon were trying to play the game big time, weren't big they? Big time, and, and I, I guess that I'm wondering when the backlash is going to come from that. I mean, ultimately... I mean, not to be El Kumbaya, but if cities benefit, shouldn't it benefit all of the cities under the same uh, umbrella? I don't imagine you singing Kumbaya. I could sing Kumbaya. You want me to go there? I, I will take a pass. Tom Keane's not here. <laughs> Hard Keen, pass. Tom, Tom Keane is the lead singer and DJ. <laughs> of all right. All right. I will let him continue to hold that mantle. Paul Sweeney. Joining me in the office here in the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Uh, Paul, really interesting to watch what's going on in Nigeria. It's being called a bellwether for African democracy, that this election has uh, more to do uh, not just with Nigeria, but the fate of democracy uh, in the entire continent. Joining us now to discuss Amaka Anku, Eurasia Group Practice Head for Africa. Amaka, can you just set up for people who are not following the African elections, what are we looking for? Why are they so crucial? Great, great. So this is Nigeria's sixth election since it, it returned to democratic rule in 1999. The last two have been fairly competitive. The last one, the incumbent lost to the opposition, who is now the president, Muhammadu Buhari. This one is also very close. And Buhari now stands, you know, faces a challenge from Atiku Abubakar. And people are watching to see, you know, will this be another scenario where an incumbent loses? Uh, but if, if, if the opposition doesn't win, will they accept the results? So there's some tension in the air right now to see how this goes down tomorrow. 
So, Amaka, obviously this is an important election. Nigeria uh, is, the, is Africa's largest economy. Um, how, what is the impact, do you believe, uh, from this election on the broader economy in Nigeria and maybe the region in general? Frankly, not much. So we had, at Eurasia Group, we had Nigeria on our top 10 global list for 2019, in part because we were making the point that you know, there, there was some optimism that if the opposition candidate was to win, it might herald some drastic change for the economy and, you know, more positive outlook. The truth is that there are really sort of two not-so-great choices before Nigerians tomorrow. And we don't see the opposition candidates being able to significantly improve the country's outlook in the next four years. And that's because he's dogged by severe allegations of corruption. He has no record of really tackling sort of the, 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 the main problems Nigeria faces, which is revenue generation. It collects kind of one of the little and smallest revenues on the entire continent. Um, so, so those are the main issues. And then, of course, he has a huge infrastructure de- deficit. Those are the main issues, and we just don't think that either candidate has either the energy, the creativity, or the competence to really tackle them, unfortunately. Yeah. Amaka Anku, uh, thank you so much for being with us. Amaka Anku is Eurasia Group practice head focused on uh, Africa and talking about the Nigerian elections. Really interesting to think, given how big this economy is, given that this nation has more than $100 billion of debt and has been borrowing a lot uh, in recent years, and given the fact that it is setting the tone for democracy in the entire continent. Definitely something that we are watching very closely uh, just to see if this does Uh, show that democracy is not necessarily on a back foot in the continent. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.